tonight, I chose a topic called viewing ourselves in our own carnal state. Now, this phrase comes out of the scriptures somewhere. We'll discover it sometime tonight in our presentation. But um, as the last couple of ones that I've done, this has been the topic of study for me last couple of weeks. I've really dug into the scriptures and tried to understand um, the aspect of the atonement, you know, really trying to troubleshoot what prevents people from successfully coming under Christ. Um, you know, sometimes we have roadblocks. We we try things and they don't work the way that we want. So I'm going to dive into the other side of the atonement, which is the bad news. In other words, the gospel is but understand the good news and to exercise and muster up enough faith to be able to call upon God in mighty prayer for deliverance of our souls, for cleanliness from sin, the remission of sins. I believe we have to understand a few certain things that the prophets told extensively in the scriptures about our own natural fallen state of mankind. The natural man, the natural woman inside each of us is the enemy to God. And that's what creates the dissonance between us and God is that we have to identify and understand, I believe, who we are as people. And what kind of a state we're in as a fallen people since Adam and what kind of challenges we have to overcome within ourselves in order to be able to approach the Lord with the faith sufficient to really ask him to deliver us. If we don't know what we're going to be delivered from or what we need to be saved from, what are the odds we're going to be able to pierce that veil and get heaven's help in coming into him? And so I'm going to take a look at sort of the I guess you'd call it the darker side of human nature, um, but it's going to be scriptural. And the prophets, as you'll see, extensively, when they would teach people, they would get people to come through the valley of the shadow of death to understand that they need to be humble. They need to look at themselves accurately in the mirror and say, I am not who I thought I was. And so sometimes that's a really hard conversation. It's a tough pill to swallow. Um, however, um, you know, I ask for your your faith and your um, your spirit tonight to help me get through this conversation, so that we ourselves can um, can figure this out because it is a a big piece of the, the puzzle here. So, I think it helps to first start out with a question: what What is our awful situation? You know, there's some stuff about secret combinations in the Book of Mormon. Um, we need to awake and arise and understand what's going on in our nation, but also within our own spirits. In regards to salvation, all of us are in a terrestrial world, excuse me, and we have to understand that we are in a place where we have to elevate ourselves to come unto Christ, and with his help, we can do that. However, we need to understand a couple of things, hope versus reality. Um, I grew up, up until I was, you know, in my teenage years, very, very arrogant, basically, looking back on it and just thinking, I never felt the real driving need to repent other than, hey, Heavenly Father, I'm sorry. I know I messed up here, but on my way, I never felt the need to repent because I didn't ever know what I needed to repent of. I had been taught that I was a chosen royal generation, that I was awesome, that I was special, that I had been preserved for the last days to battle Satan. And, you know, all the stuff that I had learned growing up as a kid, none of it was geared towards how, how I was an enemy to God. 
you know, as the natural man. But Joseph Smith had a couple of quotes that I want to kick it off with. In October 1843, Joseph Smith said, in regards to a vision he had about the resurrection of the dead, he said, the disappointment of hopes and expectations at the resurrection would be indescribably dreadful. Most of us might have blessings given to us that suggest that we're going to be able to rise in the morning in the first resurrection. Some of us might, some of us might not. But Joseph was convinced that some of us, a lot of us, would be disappointed perhaps at just how how righteous we are in the end, if we assume that we are throughout our lives. Another quote that he had, January 21st, 1843, says, But there has been great difficulty in getting anything into the heads of this generation. It's been like splitting hemlock knots with a corn dodger for a wedge and a pumpkin for a beetle. Even the saints are slow to understand. I have tried for a number of years to get the minds of the saints prepared to receive the things of God. But frequently, but we frequently see some of them after suffering all they have for the work of God will fly to pieces like glass as soon as anything comes that is contrary to their traditions. They cannot stand the fire at all. How many, how many will be able to abide a celestial law and go through and receive their exaltation? I am unable to say, as many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about our carnal state. In the Book of Mormon, Abinadi is a prophet who is sent to wake people up and to warn people to set off some alarm bells as more of a last testimony for these people. Now, King Noah and his priests, he had religious priests. There were 12 of them. They were the sort of the Pharisees or the quorum of the 12 kind of people for their day. They were in charge of the church that was popular in that land. And um, they had been off base. They'd been caught up in polygamy and tithing the people too much, you know, um, and, you know, they had become very, very wealthy, fancy buildings galore. And they had, um, really lost their ability to teach about Christ. They were so focused on the law and upon the rules of engagement within the church so they could control their people that they were, they were forgetting to teach the people about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of Christ with power. So when Abinadi comes to these people, this is what he says in Mosiah 16, one through five. The time shall come when all shall see the salvation of the Lord, when every nation, kindred, tongue, and people shall see eye to eye and shall confess before God that his judgments are just. Verse 2. And then shall the wicked be cast out, and they shall have cause to howl and weep and wail and gnash their teeth. And this, because they would not hearken to the voice of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord redeemeth them not. The wicked who are not redeemed yet are indeed wicked. They have cause to howl, weep, wail, and gnash their teeth. Because unless Christ has saved you and you have the gift of salvation, you are among those who would be destroyed and not make it. And that could be a hard pill to swallow. It was hard for me to swallow. And I'll tell you a story at the end about how I came about repenting and finding the Lord finally from a rock solid and not in a good way, but a rock hard heart that I had as a teenager. Continuing the story, Mosiah 16 verses one through five continued. 
Verse 3, for they are carnal and devilish, and the devil has power over them. Yea, that old serpent did beguile our first parents, which was the cause of their fall, which was the cause of all mankind, all mankind, becoming carnal, sensual, devilish, knowing good from evil, but subjecting themselves to the devil. And thus, all mankind were lost. And behold, they would have been endlessly lost were it not that God redeemed his people from their lost and fallen state. But remember that he that persists in his own carnal nature and goes on in the ways of sin and rebellion against God remaineth in his fallen state and the devil hath all power over him. Therefore, he is as though there was no redemption made, being an enemy to God, and also is the devil an enemy to God. So Abinadi is reminding these people that all mankind are fallen. All mankind became carnal, sensual, devilish. There's no such thing as someone born into this world who grows up and raises up through his teenage years or adult years or whatever, who is some magically chosen person, right? Jesus was sinless, sure. However, all of us have a fallen nature that we must overcome through the atonement of Christ, or else we are classified in this bucket of being carnal, sensual, and devilish. It says right here, all mankind became that since the fall, right? And so if you persist in your own carnal nature, the devil has all power over you. And it says at the end, therefore, he's as though there was no redemption made. So if Jesus Christ is not going to suffer for your sins and redeem you through your own repentance and coming unto him with broken heart, contrite spirit, DNC 97 or 19, remember, says that those people that are not redeemed, as if there was no redemption made, it says, those people must suffer for their own sins. And that suffering caused even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain. And God warned us, you do not want this. You do not want to go there. It's a horrific suffering. So it's laying the foundation a little bit. So Abinadi warned sternly about the carnal, devilish, and sensual nature of humankind. And he found this among the priests and the king and a lot of the people in that city. Very, very few listened. Let's talk about Ammon and King Lamoni a little bit. In Alma 22, verses 11 through 16, it says, And he said, Yea, I believe that the great spirit created all things. This is King Lamoni talking. And I desire that you should tell me concerning all these things, and I will believe thy words. And it came to pass that when Aaron saw that the king would believe his words, he began from the creation of Adam, reading the scriptures unto the king how God had created man after his own image and that God gave him commandments and that because of transgression, man had fallen. And Aaron did expound unto him the scriptures from the creation of Adam, laying the fall of man before him and their carnal state, but also the plan of redemption, which was prepared from the foundation of the world through Christ for all whosoever should believe on his name. And since man had fallen, he could not merit anything of himself, but the sufferings and death of Christ atoned for their sins through faith and repentance and so forth. And that he breaketh the bands of death and the grave shall have no victory. And that the sting of death should be swallowed up in the hopes of glory. And Aaron did expound all these things unto the king. 
So we talk about laying a foundation for teaching people about the atonement of Jesus Christ. Aaron and Abinadi, they had to remind the people before they could accept Christ that they were fallen, that they had great need to repent, that they can't do anything of themselves. No amount of works, no amount of to-do lists, no amount of callings or whatever could save these people, only through Christ. I think it's interesting, though, as we, as we teach the doctrine of Christ and we talk about it so much, oftentimes I will focus so much on, hey, come unto Christ with a broken heart and contrite spirit, repent, and we're all, you know, we're all good. There's all these extension experiences we can talk about, which are exciting and fun. However, we cannot gloss over the fact that the, some of the greatest missionaries in the Book of Mormon took people down a level and they humbled them by reminding them that they are set to be destroyed to be cast off, to be separated from God through all eternity if they don't humble themselves and call upon God. They have to know why they're repenting, right? And so look for that pattern in some of these stories. I'm going to continue the story. So we were in verse 13 and 14 prior. I'm going to continue in verse 15 now in Alma 22. And it came to pass that after Aaron had expounded these things unto him, the king said, what shall I do that I may have this eternal life, which thou hast spoken? Yea, what shall I do that I may be born of God, having this wicked spirit rooted out of my breast and receive his spirit, that I may be filled with joy, that I might not be cast off at the last day? What is King Lamoni's concern right now? Aaron's got him, or Ammon or Aaron, I think it's Aaron. He's got him right where he wants him. In other words, he's humble. He knows that he's in deep trouble unless he can call upon the Lord for deliverance and not be cast off the last day. He wants, he's admitting that there's a wicked spirit rooting in his breast and he wants to get rid of it and instead receive the Holy spirit of God in exchange. He wants a mighty change of heart. He wants what's in his breast gone. And for Jesus's spirit to become part of that, you know, the Holy spirit fill him with joy. So behold, said he, the king, I will give up all that I possess. Yea, I will forsake my kingdom that I may receive of this great joy. But Aaron said to him, if you desire this thing, and if you will bow down before God, and if thou wilt repent of all thy sins and bow down before God and call upon his name and faith, believing you shall receive, then shall you receive the hope which thou desirest, right? Let's talk about King Benjamin's people. In Mosiah 2, verse 4, in the Book of Mormon. And also that they might give thanks unto the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Jerusalem, and who had delivered them out of the hands of their enemies, and had appointed just men to be their teachers, and also a just man to be their king. What is a just man? They are they who have been justified by the Holy Ghost. They have been redeemed and remissed in their sins. So the Lord has atoned for their sins. They are now justified. Those are the kinds of people that have had their baptismal fire in the Holy Ghost that are in charge of King Benjamin's people. Those are their teachers. King Benjamin himself had had a baptismal fire. And it says also a just man to be their king. That's who they appointed. King Benjamin had the baptismal fire. He knows exactly what his people need to get at themselves. Right? So listen up in the following verses. We're going to talk about how King Benjamin prepares his people to have a baptism of fire in the Holy Ghost. 
And all of us who do missionary work and teach, we have to understand the pattern here that King Benjamin's about to do with his people, right? All right, back to the story. And had appointed just men to be their teachers and also a just man to be their king, who had established peace in the land of Zarahemla and who had taught them to keep the commandments of God, that they might rejoice and be filled with love towards God and all men. Remember that uh, King Benjamin had received this stuff from an angel. The angel commanded him to teach this stuff to his people. Mosiah 4, 1 and 2. And now it came to pass when King Benjamin had made an end of speaking these words, which had been delivered unto him by an angel of the Lord, that he cast his eyes round about on the multitude. And behold, they had fallen to the earth, for the fear of the Lord had come upon them. Verse 2. And they had viewed themselves in their own carnal state, even less than the dust of the earth. And they all cried aloud with one voice, saying, Oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ that we may receive forgiveness of our sins and our hearts may be purified. For we believe in Jesus Christ, the son of God, who created the heaven and the earth and all things who shall come down among the children of men. These people had been humbled to the depths of humility, which is a requirement for the Lord to provide a remission of sins and a baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost and a spiritual rebirth. Humility as a step cannot be skimmed over. We cannot assume, even though these people had just teachers and a just king and they had been taught the law, they had been taught to serve their neighbors and to be good to people and to take care of the poor, they were already pretty good people, right? A lot of the people in this call, same thing. We're pretty good people, right? At least in our own minds. But even these people, after all of that, had viewed themselves accurately in the mirror. When they stood and looked at themselves in the mirror, they thought, we are carnal people. We're in a carnal state right now. And unless we can beg the Lord to forgive us, we're screwed. We're going to be damned. We're going to be destroyed. We're going to be wiped clean from this earth one day, right? We will not make it to the kingdom of God. And so these people, despite their good works, despite being raised in the church and being good people or whatever, they had to come to that knowledge themselves that they were of a carnal state. They had viewed themselves in their own carnal state. That's the title tonight and the main message. So let's take a rewind into the story and let's take a look at what exactly did King Benjamin teach his people that humbled them, that brought them low to the dust so that they're looking at themselves less than the dust of the earth, and they're recognizing that they are carnal, fallen people, despite having a pretty awesome king, right? Let's take a look at these. King Benjamin taught them that men drink damnation to their own souls, except they humble themselves and become as little children, right? King Benjamin also taught them that the natural man is an enemy to God. The way you are, how you were raised, and how you were born naturally, you are not a friend to God. You have to become such by humbling yourself and uh, receiving of his grace. King Benjamin also taught that none shall stand blameless before God, only through repentance and faith on the name of the Lord God of omnipotent. There's no freebies here. There's no free ticket to heaven based on lineage or church you grew up in or any of that stuff, none will be blameless before God, he told them. And I think they listened. 
Natural men are consigned to an awful view of their own guilt and abominations, which doth cause them to shrink from the presence of the Lord into a state of misery and endless torment from whence there can be no return. King Benjamin's people understood that they were going to be cast off unless some mighty change could come upon them and change them from their carnal state to a state of a spiritual state, right? They felt the need for a redeemer. Therefore, their prayers worked. They were able to muster up the courage and the faith to approach God with humility and beg him for a change. You don't get a mighty change of heart if you think your heart's already awesome, right? You have to understand that your heart as a human being in a fallen world has issues and it's an enemy to God naturally. And so having need of that, these people were able to, you know, the rest, they prayed, they fell to their faces and they received a mighty transformation, which to this day, I think is the greatest story of any changed people in all of scripture. King Benjamin's people is a model for all of us who are out teaching the the doctrine of Christ. This is how it's done. If they can do it, other people can do it. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What else did King Benjamin teach his people to humble them and get them to see themselves as less than the dust of the earth? He reminded them that their torment, the torment of wicked people who are unredeemed, is as a lake of fire and brimstone, whose flames are unquenchable and whose smoke ascendeth up forever and ever. When's the last time you heard this stuff across the pulpit, right? So anyway, King Benjamin was sure that his, his address talked about giving to the poor, taking care of each other, you know, all being beggars before God. But he did hit some pretty hard points to tear these people down to a level and right-size them in their humility, right? Just in case there was pride within the group, um, King Benjamin reminded them, hey, you guys are nothing unless Jesus Christ changes your heart. And I think that laid the foundation for them to cry unto God with mighty prayer and have success. Okay. Let's talk about some of the inner workings of the atonement, the nuts and bolts of how this works. So the good news is the gospel, right? But it's only good news if you know the bad news. The bad news we're covering tonight, which is all of us, are pretty much in deep trouble if we don't have a mighty change of heart and have a redemptive experience with Jesus and are reborn as his sons and daughters. Uh, that's the bad news that if we don't do that, we don't, we're cast off forever. The good news is there's a way for us to change that, right? And so the good news of the gospel must be taught with the bad news, which is all mankind are fallen. In Alma 42, 9 through 18, we're going to walk through these pretty quickly, but pay attention to the bolded parts here. Starting in verse 9, Alma 42. Therefore, as the soul could never die, and the fall had brought upon all mankind a spiritual death, all of us, as well as a temporal, that is, we were cut off from the presence of the Lord, it was expedient that man should be reclaimed from this spiritual death. Therefore, as they had become carnal, sensual, and devilish by nature, there it is again, all mankind carnal, sensual, devilish by nature. This probationary state became a state for them to prepare. It became a preparatory state. Where have we heard the word preparatory before? The state that we're living in, in a telestial world, is a preparatory state, and the preparatory gospel must be taught 
accurately to get people to come back up to a terrestrial level and be born again, sons and daughters of God. This preparatory state that we're in, that's what the preparatory gospel is for, to get us out of that state, right? Verse 11, Alma 42. And now remember, my son, if it were not for the plan of redemption, laying it aside, as soon as they were dead, their souls were miserable, being cut off from the presence of the Lord. And now there was no means to reclaim men from this fallen state, which had, man had brought upon himself because of his own disobedience. Therefore, according to justice, the plan of redemption could not be brought about only on conditions of repentance of men in this probationary state, yea, this preparatory state. For except it were for these conditions, mercy could not take effect except it should destroy the work of justice. Now, the work of justice could not be destroyed. If so, God would cease to be God. We see how important this is that the atonement's going to be made, right? And thus we see that all mankind were fallen. How many times do we have to say it? And they were in the grasp of justice. Yea, the justice of God, which consigned them forever to be cut off from his presence. If you guys think you deserve one thing, it's this. A swift kick in the pants and to be cast off for eternity, forever separated from your God. And if you want to be judged based on the the, the law of justice, that's what you deserve, according to the scriptures. You deserve spiritual death, second death. You deserve to be cut off right? You do not want justice. You do not want this law to be your judge. You want mercy. And until we understand that the law of justice will crush us and destroy us tit for tat, well, this is not fair. You know, I need recompense for this. You owe me. And until we get over that carnal way of thinking and we approach Jesus with humility and ask for his mercy, like we're, we're stuck. I mean, these scriptures clear. Alma's teaching his people that you're done unless you Humble yourselves and realize that you need Jesus and salvation. Last verse, verse 15. Well, verse 15. And now the plan of mercy could not be brought about except an atonement should be made. Therefore, God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy, to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a perfect, just God and also a merciful God. Verse 16. And now repentance could not come unto men, except there were a punishment, which also was as eternal as the life of the soul should be, a fixed opposite to the plan of happiness, which was as eternal also as the life of the soul. Now, how could a man repent except he should sin? How could he sin except if there was no law? I'm sorry. How could he sin if there was no law? How could there be a law save there was a punishment? Now, there was a a punishment affixed and a just law given. Why? Listen to this very carefully. There was a punishment affixed and a just law given, which brought remorse of conscience unto man. The entire purpose of the atonement is to get mankind to feel something bad about their condition to bring about a remorse of consciousness to mankind. Starting to see the pattern here. God wants us to feel sorrow for our sins. He wants us to understand that we are in deep, deep trouble. How else are we going to appreciate what Jesus can do for us if we don't think we need it, right? But his laws, the laws of mercy and justice intertwining in that perfect Venn diagram and overlapping to create a 
God that is just and merciful is all meant to prick our hearts, to bring remorse of consciousness, conscience unto man. It's all by design. We have to feel sorrow for our sins or it's not going to work. You're going to keep praying right off that ceiling and back down. It's not going to go anywhere until you feel something about your, your, uh, your state and humility sets in. Okay. Let's talk, still talking about our carnal state. The third example here is Alma the Younger, right? In Mosiah 27, 24 through 29. For he said, I have repented of my sins and have been redeemed of the Lord. Behold, I am born of the spirit. So now he's talking in the past. He's recounting how this came about, his rebirth and his baptism of fire. Lots of us, myself included, were wondering for a long time, how does this work? How do I get to have that? I want that, you know? Alma Jr. is about to tell you exactly how it happened. The Lord said unto me, marvel not that all mankind, that's everybody, including you and me, all mankind, yea, men and women, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people must be born again. Yea, born of God, changed from their what? Changed from their carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness. Being redeemed of God, becoming his sons and daughters. This scripture is very clear that those who are not born again are still in their carnal and fallen state. And they're not in a state of righteousness. They're not redeemed of God. And they are not his sons and daughters yet. So until this has happened to you, we have to realize that we're in an awful situation. The baptism of fire is crucial. We preach about it all the time because that's the point at which people can become born again as sons and daughters of Christ. Super important. Why do we harp on it so much? Because if you don't have it, you're in a world of hurt eventually. All mankind must overcome this fallen, natural, carnal state in order to be redeemed, right? I hope this is repetitive enough. And so this is what I've been studying the last two weeks. And man, my prayers have become a little more sincere and a little more heartfelt as I ask the Lord for help. It's not just a drive-by window anymore where I request things from him, but I'm asking him to rid me to deliver me of the chains of hell that this natural man has upon, has upon them. Um, and even though I've had some good experiences with the Lord, we'll talk in the end about what's expected of people who've already had their baptism of fire and are born again. We'll get to that in a minute, right? What happens to people already believe in Jesus and have accepted them as their savior? We'll talk about that in a minute too. But all mankind It says here, men, women, every nation, kindred tongue, language, it doesn't matter. All of us need to understand this. And my hopes with this lesson is that I was praying for a topic. I felt impressed to share what I'd been learning with everybody, because I think this is super helpful. If we can help ourselves to get there, we have to teach that fallen mankind is a trap. And so let's continue on. So he was talking about everyone has to be changed from a carnal fallen state. In verse 27 of Mosiah 27, continuing Alma, the younger story, I say unto you, unless this be the case, they must be cast off. And this I know because I was like to be cast off. I know how screwed mankind is, he says, because I was there. 
I sat three days in darkness. And he's about to tell us the details of what that was like. Nevertheless, after waiting through much tribulation, repenting nigh unto death. That's depths of humility, right? Nigh unto death. You can't get much lower than that. The Lord in his mercy hath seen fit to snatch me out of an everlasting burning. And I am born of God. This is a man who knows exactly what it's like to go through hell and be redeemed from that suffering. My soul hath been redeemed from the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. I was in the darkest abyss, but now I behold the marvelous light of God. My soul was racked with eternal torment, but I am snatched and my soul is pained no more. The book of Moses, you remember, it says that there's opposition in all things. You know, back to the teachings of Adam, right? Our records say that mankind must understand opposition in all things. They may know the bitter, that they might know to prize the good, right? You've heard this. This is what Alma the Younger was teaching as well, is that he was able to feel such amazing joy and be filled with light and a spiritual rebirth because he had waited through much tribulation, repenting nigh unto death. He had effectively followed Christ's teachings to the point this is when he was knocked out for three days or unconscious. But during that time, Jesus had to bring him through the depths of humility so that when he wakes up in three days, he's not the same arrogant punk running around Zarahemla that he used to be. Mighty change of heart but it requires humility so that you can finally see apples to oranges. Okay. I want this. I don't want this anymore. I'm done. I'm ready to turn my life over to Christ because my life sucked prior, right? I was getting in all kinds of trouble. I was not happy. And Jesus filled me with joy. That's the message Christ is trying to implant, implant into our brains um, before he can make us born again. All right. Pretty epic photo, am I right? We're going to talk about at the heart of this problem, right? Justice versus mercy, fallen man versus redeemed man. In the middle of this, there's a giant tug of war and there's a war for your soul. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, that the strategy Satan uses versus the strategies Christ uses as they try to wrestle over the souls of men, right? An awful situation. The reality is that all of us, as fallen carnal people, we belong to the devil. In the New Testament, it says, I think Paul was teaching in Romans somewhere, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Only one perfect person. So we're already in a terrible situation, or awful situation, if you will. We belong to the devil until we are redeemed. Alma 34. Let's see what the devil's wrestling for, shall we? Alma 34, 34 through 35. For that same spirit which doth possess your bodies at the time that you go out of this life, that same spirit will have power to possess your body in that eternal world. For behold, if you have procrastinated the day of your repentance, even until death, perhaps not thinking you need it, right? If you've procrastinated the day of your repentance, even until death, behold, you have become subjected to the spirit of the devil, and he doth seal you his. 
You don't repent. You don't call upon the Lord when his arm of mercy is extended and you die and you leave this life having known good from evil, right? Book of Mormon says that all men have sufficient knowledge to know good from evil, right? It's not an excuse. So the, the devil can actually seal you his if you do nothing. And if you don't repent, and if you don't come unto Christ, by default, you know, property of Satan, a little tag on your back, you belong to him until you're redeemed. Not a positive message here tonight. And I'm sorry that this has to be kind of heavy and, and, and a lot of gravity with it, but um, that's the reality. If you do nothing to come unto Christ and to be redeemed, and if he does not accept you and call you his son or his daughter and forgive you of your sins and give you a remission of sins to make you clean, you can't make it into the kingdom of God. And therefore, by default, you're, you're on the side of Satan, right? And we'll talk in a minute about how Satan keeps people from even giving a crap, right? His main strategy is he just gets people to not care. Or to be so puffed up with pride, they don't think they need salvation or repentance or a broken heart and a contrite spirit. You know, he'll teach people to just march up to God and call upon him and not and forget the steps of repentance and humility along the way. And then live their entire lives frustrated on the hamster wheel of never getting anywhere with God, never having that real experience. That's what he wants you to do. Because property of Satan on your back, he'll claim you at the end of the, you know, at the end day last day. So that's our current condition right now is we we're the property of Satan. However, let's talk about opposition in all things, right? Isaiah 5:15 in the Book of Mormon says, "Therefore, I would that ye should be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works, that Christ, the Lord God omnipotent, may seal you his This tug of war is about who gets to seal you and your soul to them. Who gets to call you their father in the end, right? Satan's trying to seal you his. You know, Jesus said to Peter, yeah, Satan desires to have you. He's trying to sift you as wheat. He wants you, man. Satan wants each and every one of you, I'd imagine, too. Me, sure. Um, But we need to be careful because being lethargic, And being asleep behind the wheel in regards to our duty to wake up and to repent and to call upon God with mighty prayer. With all the faith that we have, that all we can muster, we have to cry unto the Lord and cry suggests that we're not happy when we do it. Right. We have to admit that we are in a terrible, terrible place. And we can't just lazily stay here. Unless you want hell, you know. But Christ is trying to save you from that suffering. Remember DNC 19. If you don't use Christ's atonement, you have to suffer yourself to appease the demands of justice. And he's begging you in that, in that chapter of DNC 19. You don't want this. I've been through it. Even a God was made to tremble because of how painful it was. How hard to bear. You have no clue how hard that was for me in the Gethsemane garden or upon the cross to deal with that. Please. Repent, come unto me. I command you to repent and come unto me so that you will not have to endure what I had to endure 
and to pay that price, to rip off that name tag and to put my name upon you, a new creature in Christ, no longer that old carnal, devilish, sensual self that you had. I'm going to rebuild you and I'm going to breathe a new spirit into you. I'm going to conceive the Holy Ghost to come into you and to fill you up. You know, this is what he's trying to do. Christ is trying to wrestle away from Satan, the souls of men, and to seal them his Holy Spirit of promise. We're going to talk about in a minute. Awesome promise. And it's to all of us. We don't have to be depressed about any of this stuff, but we do have to understand that it is a reality. To stick your head in the sand and pretend like this is not the case, you're not doing yourself or your God a favor, right? And man, I wish I would have known this growing up because it took me until I was 19 to have my bell rung and to wake up and to finally see that I was on the side of Satan. And I wept bitter tears in my efforts to reclaim my faith in Christ and to let him finally take the will. Okay, so the war for your soul, I hope that I've, I've painted that dichotomy. You have Jesus on one hand, the devil on the other, and they're both trying to seal you his, theirs, right? That's what they're going after. Remember the scripture? Whatsoever he, you shall seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven. And whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If on this earth you become sealed to Christ, guess what? In heaven you are his, Right? This sealing power that some of these prophets have is in regards to sealing people up to the day of redemption, to eternal life. God gives certain people this ability because they're doing God's will with it. They're not just randomly ordaining their friends to go to heaven. Jesus has given this power to certain men. So let's talk about Jesus Christ's strategy, shall we? Um, On one side, you've got Jesus in this tug of war. DNC 101.38. This is given in December 1833, Revelation to Joseph Smith. 101.38. Seek the face of the Lord always, that in patience ye may possess your souls, and ye shall have eternal life. Luke 21.18 and 19 says something very similar. But there shall not a hair of your head perish, and in, in your patience possess ye your souls. Well, that's interesting. Satan tries to possess us. <clears throat> he wants control of our bodies and our souls, right? New Testament's full of examples of Satan possessing people. Well, uh, guess what? Jesus doesn't want to possess your soul. He wants you to own your soul and have agency. And he's wrestling for your ability to learn how to control the man inside the machine a little bit better before he gives you your soul to possess wrangled out of the hands of Satan, right? Seek the face of the Lord always that in patience you may possess your souls. Ephesians 4.30, the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Holy Spirit of God sealed to the day of redemption. DNC 124, 124, January 19th, 1841 says, even the Holy Spirit of promise, whereby ye are sealed up unto the day of redemption, that you may not fall 
notwithstanding the hour of temptation that may come upon you. I forgot to add a scripture here, but let me look it up real quick. So the question becomes, does Jesus want to possess you like you're some sort of object or, you know, possession? Let's go to Doctrine and Covenants. I'm not showing it on the screen. I forgot to throw this one in. Sorry, but I'll read it to you. Doctrine and Covenants 121. My friends here on this group know how much I love this section. Verse 46, the last verse here. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion. This is talking about people who exercise righteous dominion, right? That they can possess their own souls and not ruin it, you know? Righteous dominion. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion and thy scepter, an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth. And thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion. We're talking about God's dominion, everlasting dominions. That's where Christ and God and his angels, the innumerable company of the church of firstborn. That's, that's talking about where they are. Everlasting dominion. And thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion. And without compulsory means, it shall flow into thee forever and ever. Jesus Christ cannot force you to do anything. He won't. He'll teach you and he'll ordain you and set you in order and give you instructions, but he'll wait like in the creation for you to listen to these laws of his, to get in line, to be obedient. And eventually you will volunteer to be on the side of God. He doesn't have to possess you. He doesn't have to use chains. You know, we talk about chains of hell and stuff like that. There's no chains of heaven. Jesus Christ wants you to possess your own soul, but he's willing to train you through the gospel how to do that so that you don't get up to heaven and fall like Lucifer did, who had no control of his pride and his arrogance and his passion and his vain ambition, right? He wasn't quite there yet. And we see what happened to people like that. Jesus wants you to possess your own soul and he's willing to seal you up to the day of redemption. And in 124, 124, it says that you may not fall notwithstanding the hour of temptation that may come upon you. Guess what? An hour of temptation came upon Lucifer and he fell. Jesus Christ is trying to get you to become better than that, to overcome all things, right? Overcome all things, including that hour of temptation, which is inevitable for all of God's children. Okay. We're still talking about Jesus Christ's strategy. In this war for your soul, we've got a tug of war between Satan and Christ trying to seal you to them. Isaiah 61, verse 1. And he, God, hath sent me, Christ, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. He wants to unshackle you because Satan's trying to chain you up. And in John 8, verse 32, you know this one. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Liberty, freedom, escaping captivity, releasing the bounds by which you're bound, right? Jesus is giving us freedom. The truth shall make you free. You shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. What is Jesus? What does John, the book of John, say that Jesus is? According to that record, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. The truth shall make you free. Jesus is the truth. Jesus Christ and his atonement will set you free from the bonds of hell and from the grasp of Satan. 
fact. Okay, we talked about Jesus' side now, right? Let's talk about what Satan's trying to do to wrestle people his way, right? The devil's strategy. Here it is. Second Nephi 28, verses 21 and 22 in the Book of Mormon says, And others, he, meaning Satan, and others, he will pacify and lull them away into carnal security. That they will say, all is well in Zion. Yea, Zion prospereth. All is well. Right? And thus the devil cheateth their souls and leadeth them down, leadeth them away carefully down to hell. And that hell is they suffer for their own sins to satisfy the demands of justice themselves because they rejected Christ's offer. And verse 22, and behold, others, he, the devil, flattereth away and telleth them that there is no hell. And he saith unto them, I am no devil, for there is none. And thus he whispers, whispers in their ears until he grasps them with his awful chains, from whence there is no deliverance. Satan's strategy. Let's define some terms here. Definitions. Okay, to pacify. You guys ever sucked on a pacifier or give one to your kids? As a parent, what are you trying to do when you shove that thing in their mouth? Trying to get them to shut up, right? And go to bed and to relax and to calm down and to stop being agitated. Stop being awake to their awful situation. They're hungry. They're nervous. They're in pain. They've got a diaper rash. You want them to just go back to being asleep so that the problem can go away for you, right? Usually as a parent, that's, that's what happens when you don't know what's wrong with a kid. You just want them to fall asleep and hope they feel better later. Um, Satan does the same thing to us. He wants to pacify us. Now, pacify, the roots of that, that's, that's a Latin word that literally means to peaceify or to bring or to make peace. Pass, peace in Latin, if I means to make. So the verb there is to restore peace or to tranquilize. Think of a tranquilizer dart, just putting you to sleep, right? He doesn't want you to resist him anymore. He wants to pacify you so that you chillax and and. and are not a problem anymore. Stop resisting him, right? He hates it when you resist him. So we'd rather put you to sleep, kind of like our government does, right? When they try to teach you false things and grasp you with their awful chains and take away your arms and get you to be pacified instead of resisting them. Satan is the author of that strategy. And he's trying to do it to all of you to get you to relax. Others he will pacify. And what? Lull them away into carnal security. Let's talk about carnal security, that big, ugly red word right there. Tell me that's not an oxymoron. If you're carnal, you're damned. You're screwed. Remember, we talked about this. You're going to be cast off forever, forever separated from your God, unless you repent and come unto him. So to be carnal and to have security is the biggest oxymoron in the world. It's impossible. He's the father of lies. He's telling you. All is well in Zion. It's all good. Don't worry about that stuff. Be pacified. Go back to sleep. Lulling you away into carnal security. (laughs) Zion prospers. I got enough money. What need to have my Lord of this tower? No big deal. It's a time of peace. It's all good. We don't need to do all this stuff. We don't have to humble ourselves and repent. Forget that, right? 
And um, so there we have it. Um, to lull, the definition of to lull is to subside, to cease, to become calm. Power or quality of soothing. Tell me. False prophets in the Old Testament were accused of soothsaying, right? If Satan's trying to get them, his false prophets, to lull the people asleep, he's going to say soothing words to them to get them to relax, right? You are a chosen royal generation. You know, you are the greatest people ever to be born into the world, right? You are, you know, the Zoramite crap. We're grateful that we're better than everybody else, you know? And I grew up in a culture where that was kind of prevalent. You'd find it a couple times on Sunday. Not everybody did it, but it was common enough to where you thought, wow, thank goodness I was born a Mormon because they're going to heaven and everyone else, it sucks to be them, right? So the quality, the power or quality of soothing, soothsayers are satanic in nature. People who tell you what you want to hear to get you to relax, run away from them. The people who tell you hard messages to try to wake you up and to ring your bell and to get you to finally pay attention to the world you live in are your friends, not your enemies. So when you come across a preacher or a prophet or anyone who claims to be anything significant in regards to God and his plan, you look for the hard messages. Are they willing to deliver a double gut punch? You know, um, Are they willing to get you to wake up? Do you feel a spiritual slap across the face when they preach? Okay. The Lord's people, the Lord's prophets, we talked about Alma the Younger, Abinadi, right? We talked about King Benjamin, nice guy. He was still delivering punches to his people and softening them to where they would humble themselves, right? Satan will never do that. He will pacify you. He'll stick a stupid pacifier in your mouth. He'll want you to go back to sleep and to stop resisting. And he's going to want you to be soothed back asleep. He wants people to sleep because those people never wake up to peel off the property of Satan sticker on their back, right? Lull to sleep. Lull them away to carnal security. Uh, You know what the word lullaby means, right? When we sing a song to a baby and it's called a lullaby, we're trying to lull them into sleep. These words in the Book of Mormon describing Satan and his plan are accurate. He wants us asleep. We're all trying to wake up. We're trying to wake people else up, other people up. Stuff ticks off Satan. I assure you that. He wants us to sleep and brain dead. So that's the devil's strategy. Okay. In DNC 101, we have an example of this. How many people here have heard this parable of the redemption of Zion a million times? I have, and most of you have. Here are some highlights. In verse 47 of DNC 101, this is 1833, early on in the church's establishment. And while they were yet laying the foundation thereof, they began to say among themselves, and what need hath my Lord of this tower? Now, if you remember, this parable is about the Lord of the vineyard going to a special land, setting up a vineyard, building a hedge around it, and commissioning the servant to build a tower. And while they were yet laying the foundation thereof, these people started to wander off and get lulled away into carnal security, right? And eventually they end up asleep. And while they were yet laying the foundation there, they began to say among themselves, what need hath my Lord of this tower? Why do I have to repent? That's stupid. I'm one of the chosen. 
And now behold, the nobleman, the Lord of the vineyard, called upon his servants and said unto them, why? What is the cause of this great evil? Ought you not to have done even as I commanded you? And after ye had planted the vineyard and built a hedge round about and set watchmen upon the walls thereof, built the tower also and set watchmen on top of the tower and watched for my vineyard. So if there was somebody, if you'd finished the tower and somebody would have been up there, you would have seen the enemy coming, right? And here's the kicker and not have fallen asleep. Satan got these lazy vineyard workers to fall asleep. And then the enemy came in and ransacked the whole, whole place, right? That sucks. Well, you see Satan's strategy in action there in that particular parable, right? That's what Satan's trying to do. And remember, there it is again. Okay, so get the dichotomy, the wrestle between Christ and Satan. They're trying to seal you theirs. Christ is trying to wake you up. Satan wants you to stay asleep. Satan doesn't want you to tell your friends and neighbors about the gospel and the things you're learning that are amazing. He wants you to sit down, shut up, not open your mouth, not invite people to things that would have a spiritual nature to them. Um, and he wants you to be afraid because he's going to teach those people you talk to. Oh, Cindy or whoever is trying to wake you up, trying to teach you what's going on in the world about these prophecies about our day. Um, be rude to her, tell her she's judgmental or, you know, he's going to try to like persecute people who are out teaching the gospel. What does carnal look like? And can it be found among even groups of Christians such as ourselves, perhaps, right? A lot of us claim to follow Christ. We probably wouldn't be here tonight. What does it look like? Paul said in first Corinthians three verses one through four, and I brethren could not speak unto you as unto spiritual But as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For here and here, hitherto, ye were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able. So these are people just beginning their journey to wake up. You know, there's meat and there's milk in the gospel. Um, And so... And he says, why? Why is he not able to get them to understand these things? Remember at the beginning, we talked about Joseph Smith, corn dodger for wedge, pumpkin for a beetle, people flying apart like glass anytime some, something came contrary to what they believed in. Why is Paul not able to teach the, the meat to these people? For He says in verse three, for ye are yet carnal. You're still carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, Are you not carnal and walk as men? Verse four, for while one saith, I am of Paul and another, I am of Apollos. Are you not all carnal? So, so Phyllis uh, for, so Paul is saying here in first Corinthians that you're yet carnal because there's still envy and strife and divisions among us, right? All of us, all of us struggle with these things to some degree or another. I'm sure Um, maybe some don't, but. But when you do that, you walk as men, you're carnally minded. One of them says, I'm of Paul. I believe this. And another's like, hey, you know what? I like this guy, this blogger over here. He's my leader. Are you not all carnal until you're all centered in Christ? Is what Paul is teaching here, I believe, right? What does carnal look like? Can it be found among Christians? Paul also says to the Romans in chapter eight, Romans eight, four through nine, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. 
For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Rebecca Griffin dropped a bomb a couple weeks ago about peace and what that means. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Peace as a symbol is the Holy Ghost. The fruits of that are the Holy Ghost. You know, the dove, the sign of it, the baptism of fire. That is the peace that Christ has um, promised all of his followers. The peaceable followers of Christ. It means these people were enabled to have that peace of the Holy Ghost in their lives. These were baptized by fire people. That's what peaceable followers of Christ means, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, right? Um, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That's that natural man King Benjamin was talking about, remember? The carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. You have carnal mind, you think carnally, you can't be reconciled to God, right? Until you understand that and repent of it. So then they are, verse 8, so then they are, I'm sorry, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's talking to a select group of Christians that have been born again, not the whole world. Ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If it so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his, meaning none of Christ's. You have not been sealed to Christ, or you're not be called his sons and daughters or whatever. Until you've had the Holy Ghost given to you in this regard, the spirit of God dwelling in you. And so Paul's again teaching these people, hey, don't be carnally minded. That's the path to death. If you remain carnally minded throughout your whole life and never have a experience in the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you might be cut off. Be careful, right? God's obviously judging us according to what laws and what light and knowledge we have. There are times when there's mercy from Christ, you know, little two or three year old kid dies prematurely. There's mercy there. They're they're alive in Christ, right? I'm not suggesting that if you die and you're not born again, that you're automatically kicked off to hell. God is the judge of that. But his prophets are teaching one thing, that if you procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end, and you had plenty of chances to do so, that's what procrastinate means. You're putting off something you know you should do, right? If that's you though, and you die, the devil will seal you his. I'm a 34, 34. What does carnal look like? Let's talk about Joseph Smith's quote. He's in 1834, February 19th, in a high council meeting in Kirtland, Ohio, right? And I get the sense that he's teaching some pretty heavy and some deep stuff. And he, he takes a minute in these notes to say, well, someone's saying about Joseph Smith, who's up there speaking in front of everybody, whoever the, the note taker was said about Joseph. He also urged the necessity of prayer, that the spirit might be given, that the things of the spirit might be judged thereby. Because the carnal mind cannot discern the things of God. That's why you need the gift of the Holy Ghost, because the gift of discerning good from evil 
and having the wise virgin mindset of taking the Holy Spirit as your guide, that's for people who receive the Holy Spirit. You need that. Otherwise, you can't discern the things of God. And if you don't have the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, you haven't been reborn completely. You have a degree of carnal mindset. And your discernment might be lacking to certain various degrees, right? Now, certainly, I'm not perfect at any of this stuff. I'm just telling you what I've been studying this week. Why do you think I'm studying it? Because I'm pretty useless in the kingdom of God unless I, I have the power of Christ to help me out. This is a lesson I'm studying. I'm not trying to be judgmental to you and pretend like I'm self-righteous here. I have felt the pain and the gravity of this topic for weeks now as I've been putting this together. Because I'm carnally minded much of the time. I, I participate in envying and strife and all of these things. I forget to give to the poor. I'll go months without doing it and space it out. You know, we, we have to remember to get back to these things. And, and most of all, I have to remember in my prayers to God that I, until I've been born again, and this applies to all of us, until I've been born again, was carnal. All of us. You know, this is what the teachings are about. All right. We started with Abinadi. Do you remember? Very beginning. He's warning the the 12 priests, high priests. We're going to finish up with Abinadi. Now, what does it mean when a prophet shows up? What does it look like when a prophet shows up to a carnally minded people and tries to give them a final warning? Right? Let's dissect Abinadi's last words before he's burned to death, shall we? This is what the last thing this man wanted to get through to people and his last message from God before he goes out as a martyr. Listen carefully. Mosiah 16, 10 through 15. Even this mortal shall put on immortality. I'm sorry. Even this mortal shall put on immortality and this corruption shall put on incorruption. And shall be brought to stand before the bar of God to be judged of him according to their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And if they be good, to the resurrection of endless life and happiness. That sounds awesome, right? If they be good, resurrection of endless life and happiness. And if they be evil, to the resurrection of endless damnation, being delivered up to the devil who hath subjected them, which is damnation. Verse 12, Mosiah 16, having gone according to their own carnal wills and desires. So these people that are cut off, endless damnation, delivered up to the devil and suffering damnation. These are people that they beat to their own drum. You know, they, they just followed their own path according to their own carnal wills and desires. They did whatever they want. They were, you know, they did what, you know, I'm not going to let God boss me around. So that's what these people are carnal wills and carnal desires, having never, this is sad, having never called upon the Lord while the arms of mercy were extended towards them. For the arms of mercy were extended towards them and they would not. They being warned of their iniquities, yet they would not depart from them. And they were commanded to repent and yet they wouldn't repent. Shoot, right? What did Jesus say about how oft would I gather you as a hen, gather with her chickens under her wing, but you would not? That's what Abinadi is saying to these people that are about to be destroyed. All right. 
Mosiah 16, 10 through 5 continued. Abinadi, final warnings to a carnal people. He continues and says, and now ought you not to tremble and repent of your sins and remember that only in and through Christ you can be saved? Therefore, if you teach the law of Moses, also teach that it is a shadow of those things which are to come. Teach them, teach your people that redemption comes through Christ the Lord, who is the very eternal father. Amen. If you profess to be a leader and a shepherd in Israel, you better be teaching your people this stuff, right? And I don't care if you're Catholic, Baptist, Protestant, Latter-day Saint, I don't give a crap. If you are in charge of a flock in Israel, you better be teaching people this stuff, Abinadi says. Or you are a hypocrite and you will be delivered up to the buffetings of Satan, right? Not a pleasant message for shepherds who should be up on the tower watching, but who are fast asleep and letting secret combinations roll in and plow down their hedges, right? And set up their own towers, you know, their own Babylons and their one world governments to take over. And if heaven forbid, there are people among us that claim to be prophets or seers or revelators or shepherds in Israel that are allowing those things to happen and allowing their people to be dragged off and destroyed in the flesh. That's a sorrowful message for them. Lest they repent, but they must repent of a lot of iniquity because they have a lot of influence here, right? King Benjamin, I'm sorry, King Noah and his 12 priests, they had a lot of influence over these people. I don't know how big the city was that King Noah was in charge of, but I think it was a lot, you know, big enough to have vineyards and all these industries set up and craftsmen to build these gigantic temples and stuff. like. I mean, it was a pretty big city, right? Well, it's not some little village out in the woods. So King Benjamin, because of his influence and the 12 high priests that Alma was part of, because of their influence, and they were a quorum that was in charge of teaching people the word of God and prophesying to them so that people like Abinadi don't have to go in there and do it for them. These people had to wake up to their awful situation. They had to realize that they were fallen and lost, that they didn't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ well enough. They were probably focused on collecting tithing and building spacious buildings and ignoring the poor and all this other stupid stuff that Moroni said, don't you dare do in the last days. So that is the story of Abinadi in his last words. And he says in 13, I'll recap it one more time. He doesn't just say, Hey, go get baptized. You'll be good. He says, no, you ought to tremble. You ought to be afraid about your terrible situation, your fallen nature, your carnal state. Wake up to that, be afraid, tremble, and then repent of your sins. And after you've repented of your sins, you need to remember and always remember that only through Christ you can be saved, not your stupid law, right? Only through Jesus Christ. Sorry, getting a little passionate here. It's a fun topic. Um, Let's talk about the fate of a carnally-minded people. Uh, This is the hard part of the lesson. Uh, So, um, Abinadi, King Noah's people, it wasn't long after that until King Noah himself got killed. He was burned by his own men. And 
people came in, enemies came in and took over their cities and slaughtered a bunch of people. It was not pleasant. Had they just listened, they could have avoided some of that stuff. Thank goodness Alma woke up. Alma was convicted of his own sins, listening to Abinadi preach. He woke up and he went out and he started teaching the gospel, right? So when you wake up and you come to a conviction of your own sins and you call upon God for forgiveness and you have a spiritual awakening in your own life, you better get busy on missionary work. That's what people do when the Holy Spirit comes in their lives is they turn around just like Enos and say, you know what? I have an intense desire to help my brother in the Lamanites. I'm going, I'm going to start spending a lot more time teaching and preaching and fellowshipping and making friends and going out to lunch with people and inviting people to meetings and teaching meetings. It doesn't matter what you do. That's not what this is about, but you better do something because the Lord, when he wakes you up and he gives you a portion of his spirit, like Alma, they're able to have amazing things happen, right? Alma did a lot of good, right? So there's a positive side to this. If you listen now, let's talk about the fate of carnally minded people who don't listen. Mormon chapter two, verses 12 through 15. This is called the sorrow of the damned scripture. And it came to pass that when I Mormon saw their lamentations and their mourning and their sorrow before the Lord, my heart did begin to rejoice within me, knowing the mercies and the long suffering of the Lord. Therefore, supposing that he would be merciful unto them, that they would again become a righteous people. So he's got these people that are sort of waking up. There's, there's signs that people are getting better, you know? Um, but in verse 13, verse 13, he says, but behold, this, my joy was vain for their sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness and sin. These people were sad because the Lord was cracking down on them and wouldn't let them live in Babylon any longer. Wouldn't let them enjoy their freedoms to go and break the Sabbath and to be completely lazy and derelict in their duties as Christians anymore. No, their world is getting taken away and ruin is setting in. We're facing this today, folks. We're on the cusp of our society radically changing. Rights are being taken away, privileges, but also the leisures and the pleasures and the, the rich food and the, the movies on the weekends and whatever else we enjoy about Babylon is going to come tumbling down because the great and spacious building does take a mighty tumble. And so the only thing that's going to get you off being built upon the sand and to watching your world crumble down to the dust in ruin is to get on the rock of Jesus Christ immediately tonight. If you can approach him with a humble heart, think of yourself in your own carnal nature and beg the Lord to deliver you from that. When you stand on that rock, the waves will come crashing in. And they'll beat upon you and you won't be moved, right? All right. So the sorrow of the damned. So their sorrow didn't lead them to repentance. They were just sad about the state of the world, but they didn't turn to Christ. And there's a lot of people in patriot movements and whatever that are seeing problems, but they're forgetting the crucial puzzle piece, Jesus Christ. 
And being born again, that's how you become someone who can navigate the troubles of this world and who can have the peace that Christ can give to you. Mormon 2, 15 through 12 through 15. The next couple of verses of this, whoops, sneak peek. Next couple of verses go like this. The fate of carnally minded people. And they did not come unto Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirits. But they did curse God and wish to die. Nevertheless, they would struggle with the sword for their lives. These people ransacked Walmart and bought AR-15s, and they're willing to go down with the sword, but they won't break their own hearts. They won't have a contrite spirit, which means repentant spirit, by the way. But they're willing to fight for their own lives and struggle for them, like a bunch of telestial you know, people about to be swept off. And it's really sad. Mormons watching his people that he had labored diligently to teach. He knew about the historical records of Nephi, King Benjamin, Alma. He saw all this stuff. He was helping compile it. And now he sees his people in a terrible, terrible situation with their governments about to be swept off, swept off because Gadiantans are taking over, right? There was genocides and all kinds of stuff happening. They did not come into Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirits. Nevertheless, they struggled with the sword for their lives. Yeah, good luck, right? And it came to pass that my sorrow did return unto me again. And I saw that the day of grace had passed with them, both temporally and spiritually. For I saw thousands of them hewn down in open rebellion against their God and heaped up as dung upon the face of the land. That's a super sad story. And uh, it's, it's heavy to read those chapters. Mormon was just struggling. Oh, ye fair ones, you know, why wouldn't you just listen to God? Just do it. You know, the scriptures are right before you. The prophets are speaking like, mm, why don't you just do it? You know, it's, it's frustrating, right? What about those who already believe in the gospel, though? We just talked about the sorrow of the damned. These people wouldn't turn to Christ. What about these people that are stuck in this awful situation, yet they are turning to Christ or doing the best they can, right? A lot of us on this call are trying really hard, and that's amazing. In fact, that hope and that joy from seeing all of you in this community and hearing about what's happening in your lives is what keeps me going most of the time, right? Um, That makes it worth it. Those are the fruits of some of the labors that we're doing here is to just try to get people to focus back on Jesus Christ. And we've got millions of people to wake up, you know, it's, there's a lot ahead of us, but Holy Spirit will help us. What about those who already believe? Third Nephi 12, verse two through three in the book of Mormon. This is the Beatitudes, the beginning of it. Yea, blessed are all they who shall one believe in your words. Talk about the words of the apostles that he's going to send out. And two, come down into the depths of humility. Three, and be baptized. So if you do those three things, believe in in, in the word of God, then, don't forget this part, then come down into the depths of humility and then be baptized. Don't be baptized without humility. That's not going to do you anything. You're going to waste your time and get really cold in the river. So believe the word of God, come down to the depths of humility, repent and be baptized for they shall be visited with fire and with the Holy Ghost and shall receive a remission of their sins. You can't cut out any part of that equation, right? And expect results. That's verse two in 35, 12. Now verse three says, yea, blessed are 
the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when we desire to come unto him, let's make sure that our spirits are poor, that we're not thinking we're something we're not, that we're not puffed up with pride or ego, that we're not believing we're elect when we're not. But get back to that poor in spirit of realizing that, you know what, we are in deep trouble without God's grace and his mercy. Come unto Christ with that attitude and that mindset, which we've been talking about all along tonight. And I promise you that level of humility and recognition to the Lord is going to make you far more grateful for anything that comes your way from him. And when you do receive the Holy Ghost and have a a mighty experience and a change of heart, you'll know who to give credit to. Jesus Christ. But you have to be poor in spirit because he has to strip you of pride, right? You remember Alma 5. Have you been stripped of pride? You have to be in order to get this stuff, right? So what about those people who are already born again, who have received their baptismal fire, the Holy Ghost or whatever? Are they off the hook? Are they now going to go around and brag 24-7 about how awesome they are? No. King Benjamin reserved part of his sermon for those people. And here's what he said in Mosiah 4, 11 through 12, King Benjamin says, and again, I say unto you, as I have said before, that ye have, that as you have become, as you have come to the knowledge of the glory of God, or if you have known of his goodness and tasted of his love and have received a remission of your sins, what people are these? Those who've had remission of their sins. That's who he's talking to which causeth such exceedingly great joy in your souls, even so I would that you should remember and always retain in your remembrance. Don't forget this lesson. Remember and always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness and his goodness and long-suffering towards you, unworthy creatures, and humble yourselves even to the depths of humility calling upon the name of the Lord daily. Don't forget who got you there. Calling on the name of the Lord daily and standing steadfastly in the faith of that which is to come, which was spoken of by the mouth of the angel. Do not for one second allow yourselves to be puffed up in pride. Don't you dare. You had nothing to do with the Lord remissing your sins except realizing that you were broken and that you needed help. And yes, you came unto him. Congratulations. And you exercised faith. Nice job. However, you did not have the power to do that yourself. So don't you dare think you're awesome because of it. The greatness of God always your remembrance. You need to retain that. Because if you let go of that, then pride comes in and boy, you do not want to be someone who's had an experience like this and then denied the Holy Ghost or allowed yourself to be overtaken by the cares of the world. Nephi says it's better you hadn't even been born than that happens to you. So be careful. Mosiah 4, he's saying, always retain and remember it's the greatness of God in your own nothingness and his goodness and long suffering towards you, unworthy creatures, and humble yourselves, even in the depths of humility. Remember, he's talking about people who already had success with their spiritual rebirth. They've already had a remission of their sins, right? They have to still humble themselves, even to the depths of humility. You betcha. You have to stay humble. And behold, in verse 12, and behold, I say unto you that if you do this, you shall always rejoice, always, and be filled with the love of God, 
and always, check this out, and always retain a remission of your sins. You can always have that gift and that clean feeling if you just remember to keep yourself humble. Always retain a remission of your sins. And you shall, listen to this, this is awesome. And you shall grow in the knowledge of the glory of him that created you. Or in the knowledge of that which is just and true. And behold, I say unto you that if you do this, you shall always rejoice and be filled with the love of God and always retain a remission of your sins. And he's talking about the stuff that's just and true. You'll grow in the knowledge of that which is just and true. What does that mean? DNC 76, 53. And this is describing the people of the celestial. And and who overcome by faith and are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which the Father sheds forth upon all those that are just and true. If you do the stuff King Benjamin's telling you to do, humble yourselves to the depths of humility. Always remember that you're nothing before God. Okay? Then he can finally fill you with the knowledge of our Redeemer. You'll know more about Jesus Christ than anybody on the block if you can just stay humble, right? And you will grow in the knowledge of that which is just and true, which we just learned is a celestial law, right? So in closing, I told you that I'd tell you a little bit about my journey, but we're running out of time. I'll make it super quick. When I was 19, you wouldn't believe how much of an arrogant jerk I was. I was into vandalism, hardcore drugs for three years in high school. I was in the party scene. I drank, I smoked weed. I did all kinds of stupid stuff, right? I'm why? Cause I'm carnal. I'm devil. I'm, you know, I devilish. I'm sensual. I don't deny it. I was a sack of trash back then right? But when I was 19 years old, I found myself staring down the barrel of a gun, ready to end it all, because I had deleted every ounce of joy from my body, because I, in my heart, was proud, and I wouldn't let God in, and I wouldn't admit that I was a problem child, or that I was a sinner. I still thought that I was pretty cool, and I could do whatever I wanted, right? But I resisted the feelings that the Holy Ghost was trying to get through to me. That's like, you need to pump the brakes child, or you're going to go off a cliff one day or end up in jail or shot or dead. You know, I don't know what my fate would have been had I continued on the path. But one night when I was contemplating ending it all, and I didn't believe in God at this point, really, I was sick of the church garbage. I hadn't been active in the church for years. I didn't give a crap about scriptures. I was completely trying to get away from that stuff because it brought me so much guilt. But while I was in that condition, now this particular night that I stumbled home in the middle of the night, probably three or four in the morning, several days prior, I had, um, I had decided to do a hallucinogenic drug with my friends. And as a hilarious prank, you know, I, I, I took an overdose. I took way more than my 130 pound scrawny body could handle. And uh, this is stuff that would drive even 300 pound grown men to insanity. I took too much and I was in the gall of bitterness for two or three days, completely out of my mind. But I was conscious enough to understand that I was going to, I thought I'd thrown away my life and become a vegetable. And I stumbled into my house. I finally made it home. I think I walked. It was the middle of the night. I don't even remember what day. I mean, I was 
I was in bad shape. I was mentally ill at that point, And I thought that I would never, ever recover. But as I crawled up next to my bed, exhausted and tired, having not slept for three days, having looked in the mirror in my bathroom and seen my eyes as big as saucers, and I just looked horrible. And I just thought to myself, how did I let myself get to this? I remembered something that I had heard in seminary or a church or something. But I remembered that, okay, when people are down on their luck, when people come to the realization of how terrible they are and how carnal they are and how bad at life they really are, I remembered that Jesus, I didn't believe it, but I remembered someone said that, you know, Jesus can help you when you get to that point in your life. And so falling asleep on the side of the bed, I decided to say the first prayer in about two or three years. And it went like something like this. Heavenly Father, if you're there and you give a crap, can you help me? I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I'm tired. I've messed up. I've thrown my life away. And I know that I'm nothing. But if you're there and you're willing to help me get another chance, I promise to you, I will turn my life around and I will become a disciple and I will, I'll do all the churchy stuff that I just hate. You know, I'll, if you can just help me get my life back, I don't want to be a vegetable the rest of my life in a wheelchair, having a perfectly good mind and having thrown it away with chemical abuse. You know, um, I, I don't want to waste my life anymore. And I'm sorry that I allowed myself to do that. I'm sorry. I ignored your Holy ghost this whole time. And I'm sorry that I thought I was awesome when I really wasn't, but I'm done. And I'm willing to let you in. Finally, I will turn my life over to you. If you can get me out of this jam. I had awoken that night to my own, my own carnal state. And it was horrifying. And so that night I fell asleep. I didn't even end the prayer. I fell asleep during the prayer, I think. And I had the most horrific vision or dream. It was a, it was a lucid dream. I was fully awake in that thing. And I remember it to this day. I've written in several of my journals, the most horrific dream of me going through the depths of hell and having no deliverance. Despite my pleading, despite my begging the Lord to rescue me from the pit of hell, nobody came and I couldn't find my way out. But in that morning, the next morning at about 11 o'clock, I woke up and I was still crunched over on the side of my bed. And uh, the birds were chirping. It was a bright, beautiful summer day. It was sometime in the summer. Nobody was home. Everyone had gone to work and stuff in my house. But um, I woke up and zero hangover, zero mental unclarity for me. And I woke up feeling 110%. My mind was sharp. I, I felt joy. I was happy. I had felt that the Lord had redeemed 
me to some degree, at least to the point that he had remissed my sins and forgiven me. And he had given me another chance. But you know what? I was now stuck. Because now I've got to make good on my promise that I made. And I'll tell you what, I wrestled for a day just thinking, oh my gosh, that did not just happen. I told God I would be churchy and that I'd go on a mission. What was I thinking? It's the last thing I want to do, right? But God knew it and I knew it, what had just happened. And so long story short, I would have never in a million years mustered up enough faith and desperation to plead with God for remission of sins ever. I would have never done that had I not been brought low. Had I kept the pride going and said, my will over yours be done, I would have never had that chance to feel of his redeeming love and his power of redemption, you know? And so... I wasn't perfect at that point, but I went on a mission within six months. I started going to instant classes, three of them a week. I started reading the scriptures. I didn't know anything about the scriptures, Um, but you know, it's not about me. It's about the Lord. He can reach people who are down in the depths of humility, who see themselves in their own terrible carnal state. And he can reach down and he can pull you up if you're willing to plead and beg with him for his mercy. And that's the message tonight is that if we want deliverance from our awful situation, from our own carnal state, from our fallen status with mankind, we have to strip away the pride and the arrogance of thinking that we're something special because we're not, not until we become infused with the power of God through his spirit, then he can make weak things become strong unto men because he gives us weakness that we may be humble, right? And so my testimony to all of you is to remember that it's God that's doing this work. It's God that's giving you this Holy Ghost and this inspiration and these dreams and these visions or whatever. Let's give credit where credit's due to him and let's stay humble and let's continue to abase ourselves. Jesus Christ taught in the New Testament, whoever humbles themselves will be abased. But whoever abases themselves shall be exalted, right? That's the message here. We have to teach that as part of the doctrine of Christ, that we can't skip humility in the steps of faith, repentance, baptism of water, baptism of fire, seeing Jesus in the flesh. Where's the humility in that? It better be part of our teachings because it was part of Jesus's teachings and it was part of his prophet's teachings, at least the true ones. And that testimony I leave with you that there is good news. Jesus Christ can redeem us if we call upon him and as we repent and turn our lives over to him with full purpose of heart, real intent, with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, I promise you, I've seen it in my own life several times. He can rescue us from our terrible situation. And I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.